There is no substitute for innovation, right? You could have the best entrepreneurs. You could have the most sophisticated executives. You could have the smartest team from Ivy Leagues. None of that really will get you uh, out of the, the situation that you're in. Um, you have to innovate yourself out of it. And uh, oftentimes, innovation is the only answer, and it's the hardest thing to do. Welcome to our podcast on the ground up, where we interview startup founders exploring their journeys, their success, challenges, and lessons learned. We hope you'll be inspired in discovering what it takes to build a thriving startup. I'm your host, Jake Aaron Villarreal, and excited to have with us today, Rana Gurl, founder of Behavioral Signals, an LA-based startup in the AI space. Rana, thanks for joining the show today. It's a pleasure, Jake. Thank you for having me. Great. So you've got a great story. Um, we're going to talk about the, the company you built and how it mixes in with AI in today's world. And also we'll talk about you, kind of where it all started and where it began. It's a great story because it's different um, for the listeners that we talk to with other founders that really have a, a, a starting where you, you come into a, an accelerator, you come out of that, you build a product or you have an idea and you take that to market, you get funded and you hope for the best. But yours is more unique in the fact that you went into technology and then you had a very quick rise to success within the enterprise. From there, you went and went, you know, came out of MIT and then applied your core skills in management consulting as well as uh, turnaround companies. So maybe not all in that order, but we're going to start off. So just a little bit more background about um, you. Kind of walk us through your today a startup founder, you're an investor, you're probably a mentor. I know you contributed to articles for TechCrunch and Forbes magazine around technologies and innovation. Kind of how did this all begin for you? That's, um, it's been an amazing journey. Um, and I, you know, I feel um, I've been really fortunate to have had uh, these many amazing experiences presented to me. Uh, my early days, as you just said, you know, uh, I mean, I've, I've been in technology pretty much my entire career. My early days uh, sort of were in some early exploration around various other, I'd say, related aspects, but not quite programming. I started off as, uh, as a programmer, um, had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I, I realized that I wanted to go explore the other side of the business uh, outside of building a product. And so um, management consulting was very alluring. Um, so after I went to business school, I, uh, you know, uh, went into engagement consulting, managing space for a bit. Um, realized I, re uh, I, I like building products better. So I came quickly back into building products um, and, um, you know, worked at uh, some very large uh, product uh, and public companies where I was part of some iconic product journeys, uh, some really amazing experiences. Um, had a lot of fun building um, Google TV, which was a early precursor to Chrome Stick back in the day, um, among other interesting product lines, uh, which were in many ways ahead of its time. Like for example, uh, Logitech had this view of uh, smart home and digital home, and it, this was this was a time when you know the homes were not smart, and uh, there was there were there were. Uh, you know, very sort of disparate pieces of technology still coming together, but there was this vision that at some point it will be smart and there will be these building blocks. And so we started to sort of think about those things uh, from various experiences, connected devices and connected experiences, you know, um, 
including sort of like home security systems to home entertainment systems. Um, and then um, I had uh, this amazing opportunity to go be part of this turnaround uh, journey at this iconic company that had been in business for over 25 years. Um, you know, at, at its heyday, it was doing close to half a billion in sales. And then things went down south and um, this company was really um, close to being bankrupt. It was a few weeks out from folding up um, and backed by big private equity players, uh, there was a chance to sort of go work on a turnaround. Um, so I jumped on that uh, to go, you know, explore that potential. And uh, we had this amazing opportunity to go rebuilt the product line, um, look at uh, innovation from grounds up um, and bring the company back to life. Uh, long story short, uh, we were very successful in doing so. Uh, we were able to you know, turn around the EBITDA about 120 million in a little bit over two years. Um, that, that, that happened very quickly. And eventually the company um, held a very successful IPO um, at 4.4 billion. Um, I... Um, also had this innate desire to go uh, do a company from grounds up because at that point of my career, I had um, had quite a bit of success in the corporate world um, and also had good amount of success in building products that were successful. Um, and outside of that, you know, we had this amazing opportunity to turn around this company, which was quite a journey. But um, I, I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, uh, explore what it takes to build a company from a paper napkin idea stage. Because um, that first, you know, million dollars in sales, that first sort of uh, client, uh, which manifests from an idea you had, um, is a very different feeling, a very different experience. So um, I launched a company called Ties. This was um, a vertical SaaS. Uh, we built up workflow optimization engine uh, that optimized uh, the business processes of a very archaic industry, which was uh, specialty chemicals, which had a lot of complex processes. And so we built the software systems very specifically for that industry. That's why it's called Vertical SaaS. Um, and we also used uh, machine learning, uh, which again was ahead of its time. We built these engines that predicted commodity prices um, ahead of, you know, three months out in the future. and. Um, we had some early success that we got acquired by, uh, and then I um, went back to the corporate world for a bit, and then you know um, uh, I've been part of this uh, amazing journey at Behavioral Signals since. And Behavioral Signals is um, is both uh, a startup um, and it's also a mission. Um, and uh, you know we're at the very core building essential building blocks of AGI. Um, that it will eventually lead to more empathetic interactions with machines down in the future. Um, and uh, in many ways, you know, uh, we've been focused on sort of uh, doing things which haven't been done before. I mean, in the in the emotion behavioral space, uh, for the most part, uh, most of the companies were uh, still looking at, uh, you know, like in, on the voice AI side, still very much sort of focused on the spoken word. So, you know, you, you take, a transcription engine or an ASR and convert the spoken word uh, audio into the spoken word and then parse the words for meaning. And uh, needless to say, it's not a very good way of doing it. I mean, you're losing many elements of a conversation when you're focused on just the word. And uh, But the tone of voice has been, you know, very elusive. It's very difficult. It's very hard to 
um, I guess, guess, get right. Um, there was not, not enough data back in the day. So our co-founders also, you know, have amazing chops in this field. And some of the early research was done inside of USC um, at Sale Labs, where some of these models were built to help, um, you know, kids who uh, suffered with autism. And, you know, a lot of the kids who are autistic are super smart, but they struggle with understanding the emotional and behavioral quotient of the person that they're interacting with. So the thought process was, what if you can build a tool that could help them do so, like, you know, in real time, help them assess uh, what is the emotional behavioral state of mind uh, of the person that they're interacting with. And so that's how it all started. Um, and then we built these engines, uh, you know, which started to perform really well, but it took a long time you know, in, in machine learning and AI, uh, you're always, especially if you're building um, uh, an aspect that is closer to deep learning, which is uh, a core human brain function, and you're trying to replicate that in the software system, you always have to sort of uh, measure the progression uh, in comparison to how well can a human do it? And uh, where are you in terms of sort of that benchmark? And so that's sort of... Uh, measured oftentimes by this number called an F-score. And F-score is, um, you know, is a number typically between zero and one, you know, one being the highest it can be or 100%. Um, and it's a combination of two things. One is precision, which is accuracy. And second is recall, which is false alerts. And so you'd, you'd benchmark a human capability and have an F-score of that. And a human, human, a typical average human F-score for, um, understanding emotions and behavior uh, from the tone of voice is about 0.8. Um, you know, obviously, um, females do this better than men. That's just known. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been all told this, and it's actually true. Uh, but on average, it's about 0.8, uh, which means about 80% of the times we're right, and 20% of the times our brains are wrong in assessing the emotional behavioral quotient. Um, and so when we started off, uh, we quickly got to 0.5.6, which was really exciting, but then it's not really sufficient to go build compelling business use cases on or solve industry problems. And it took a long time for us to get to 0.7, very, very long time to get to 0.8. And then we had a point of inflection and then we, you know, quickly crossed the, the human threshold. And currently we are sort of, you know, uh, beyond that, we're in the 0.9 category. And so then when you get to that point, things become really exciting because now you have the software system um, that has replicated an essential brain function. And uh, it is going to obviously play a huge role in, you know, in the future AGI whenever that emerges because um, you're, you're looking at building an AI that is more and more like human and these essential brain functions really quantify uh, what it means to be a human. And so now you can have a software system assess uh, the emotional behavioral context of a conversation and of, of an individual real time uh, from these nonverbal cues, which is pitch and tonal variance, intonations, prosody. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, that's the space that we're playing in. And, um, and obviously many different applications, uh, we have a core business focus uh, around optimizing interactions uh, between uh, call center agents and the customers that are calling in. Uh, but the technology can also be applied in many other industry sectors. And we do dabble in some other ancillary areas uh, in parallel as well. So 
Yeah, it's been quite a journey, uh, and it continues. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I want to go back to one thing you mentioned, and I have a couple questions. One, you said that women were better, or at least more, I don't know, may, maybe more emotionally connected to the tone of being able to listen to the communication and maybe understand what that person's feeling. How is the, and, and it, and if it's statistically or it's, it's ranked that way. What is it that you think they have that men don't have? Um, I mean, I, um, are you specifically talking about sort of, uh, you know, male, female? Uh, yeah. Like yeah. you mentioned that, yeah, in your studies or when you were working through the your research, rather. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, um, it's not necessarily... Uh, totally understood. I mean, there's a lot of brain functions, there's a lot of brain capabilities or human capabilities that we don't really understand. It is what it is. What we can do is we can measure it, right? So we could right. sort of try to understand um, sort of like the points of differences. Why do we, why do they exist? I mean, um, I, I, you know, I don't know uh, if I personally completely, totally understand um, why those differences occur. Um, in fact, you know, like, interestingly, I, I'd say, um, We've been able to replicate, and this this is an interesting uh, paradigm in AI. Um, like, for example, when you're trying to replicate a brain function, um, like we did for extracting these signals from tone of voice, um, we took a stab at uh, a, a hypothetical direction that we could take to go uh, do so. And you'd build a model, um, and then you'd, you'd train the model, and then you'd, you'd, you'd see how the model performs, and you keep tweaking it. And if you don't get the right results, you build a different model and you try out different ideas. And then suddenly either it works or it continues to not work and you keep trying. But let's say it works and in our case it worked and now we have this uh, model that performs really well. Uh, but we don't really know if that model replicates how the human does it, right? So we've found a way, but is it actually, has it actually cracked the code of how humans do it? We don't know. Um, and, uh, so a lot of these things are still mysteries for us. I mean, you know, uh, there's potentially many different ways to get to those endpoints. Um, you know, a lot of this is a bit of an experimentation. Yeah. And we hear that a lot with companies in AI where you, there's a lot of lab testing and you finally fight, figure out you know, yeah. what you're trying to get. And then you continue to iterate and move forward and you find your market or you find the applications that it suits. Um, Walk us through a little bit about the applications that you, you, you talked about call center and, and things like that, but give us a specific use case where maybe you first started applying it and you found that, okay, we have a market here. What was that and how did you find that market? We actually tested a variety of different ideas before narrowing on to um, you know, the use case that we're focused on today. Um, I mean, when you're talking about... Um, applying a capability that un understands the emotional behavioral quotient and also the state of mind. Uh, but let me let me describe the technology a little bit better. That that will be a good sort of, a, you know, building block to this conversation. So what our engine does is in a real life conversation like ours, um, which could include two parties or multiple parties, uh, it could extract signals real time uh, specifically focused on the nonverbal cues, which means it's not processing the spoken word. Um, at no point uh, you're using an ASR to take the audio, converting that into actual words. So your words don't matter. Uh, your language doesn't matter. You could have, be having this conversation in any language. Uh, your dialects or accents don't matter. 
Um, and then from the nonverbal cues, which is pitch and tonal variance, intonations, prosody, um, and etc., uh, you are extracting signals, but the signals that you're extracting can be bucketed into three categories. First, there is the bucket of emotions, like anger, happiness, sadness, there's a whole range of emotions you can tap into. Then there is the bucket of behaviors like engagement, empathy, politeness, etc. Um, then there is this uh, super interesting bucket, which is um, taking some of these uh, low-level signals and combining them towards a greater level of understanding of a mental state or a behavioral state. Um, you know, you call it like you know some advanced classifiers. Um, so this is where you could identify someone's level of experience or satisfaction. Let's say, you know, customer satisfaction or overall satisfaction uh, in the moment live. So think of this as a live NPS score um, or uh, your engagement meter. Um, but also very interesting things such as stress. Like, are you stressed? Let's see how stressed are you, um, you know, or you're under some sort of a duress uh, or control. Control's interesting. Control's more of, you know, you're saying something, but... Um, do you want to say it or is someone making you say it? You know, detecting that. Um, and intent. I mean, you could uh, do very complex intent markers, which is intent for an action or intent to not do an action. Um, and uh, you could you could identify that real time. So you could uh, intend to like propensity to pay. Uh, that would be in a debt collection scenario, propensity to buy, which is in a you know sales scenario. So all of those things are uh, possible uh, from the core tech. You could apply this core technology in many different industry verticals. You could uh, certainly, you know, uh, apply it on the healthcare side. There's a lot of uh, research now that's being done that you could predict certain pathologies using certain vocal biomarkers and also just sort of well-being, et cetera. Um, but the most, and, and, and but the, the, the two sort of broad areas of application, one is human-to-human -human interactions, and then there is human-to-machine interactions. Um, the human-to-human -human interactions mostly happen in the business setting. Um, so this is where, you know, most of our human-to-human -human business interactions happen in call centers. You know, everything is digitized. You know, you're not necessarily walking into a, you know, a business anymore. You're interacting with them by calling them. And um, so that's one big area of optimization because it's still very much broken, as, as you would know. And um, then there's a the human to machine interaction, which is, you know, building these machines that you can talk to, but having a more human like experience or interaction with these machines. So uh, giving these machines who which is in a voice conversation with you or voice interaction with you, uh, the ability of a human uh, to understand the emotions and the behaviors uh, from your tone so that they can uh, be more accurate in their responses or more empathetic in their responses. So those are sort of the two areas. So we tested a lot of those areas, um, both on the human-to-machine side and on the human-to-human -human communication side. And one opportunity eventually we narrowed down onto was uh, actually quite interesting, which was, um, first off, we, what we were able to do was to you know create what we call a conversational bioprint of a, of a person based on a previous audio interaction. What is this? Well, a bioprint, Conversational bioprint is really it's a it's a vector file of you know between seventy five to hundred attributes that range from various things such as how do you converse how do you speak do you speak fast do you speak slow what emotions and behaviors do you typically exude in a conversation that's unique to you um, you know among other things so you know various attributes between seventy five to hundred 
But when you put it all together, there's this one bioprint that encapsulates a deep understanding of how you converse. And you would have one that's unique to you. I would have one that's unique to me. It's very similar to, you know, a fingerprint, which makes us makes us unique as individuals. Um, once you have those bioprints, um, you can use those bioprints to make intelligent decisions around who should be paired with who if there's a conversation to happen uh, to ensure um, that there's going to be a great flow of the conversation. Mm -hmm. You got to have a good dialogue, good conversation. Um, and um, if you are able to pair people together who are bound to have a great conversation, um, it automatically directly impacts whatever is the outcome of the conversation, whether that's customer satisfaction or sales or you know debt collection or whatever that is. So we were able to build that product, which has never been built before, right? So there's there's been products that do do this matchmaking, but they use very different approaches. They use complex Venetian heuristics, use a lot of data, public data sets, et cetera, but not really essentially using a bioprint that can be created real time using tone of voice, and then matchmaking can happen dynamically real time using you know using these voice engines, um, and then bam, two people are put together who are bound to have a great conversation. Um, so that's the product we bought to market. It's called AI Mediated Conversations. Um, obviously, it's uh, very well suited for call centers. Um, a lot of the clients that we have are financial institutions, banks, you know, collection houses, BPOs, etc. Um, and they're using it to optimize the client experience, but also optimize the various uh, outcomes that they want to optimize. So you could tune the matching towards the outcome that you require. Um, and it's very interesting the way it works. It's like you know, I'll just give you one more anecdote. You know, we've all been in uh, one of the two situations uh, or both of those situations that I'll describe. One would be, let's say you're discussing something with someone and it's actually some sort of a negotiation and you're, it's a tense adversarial conversation. You're trying to get to, you're trying to get your point across and the other person trying to get their point across and it becomes really engaged and gnarly and tense. And you walk out of that conversation without being able to get your point across. So in some ways you lose that discussion but you feel good about that dialogue. You've, you talk to yourself and you say, you know, I, I didn't get my point across or I didn't win that dialogue, but boy, that was a good conversation. I feel good about it. That's one instance. And there's a second instance where, you know, you met someone at a party or it's a casual meetup and not discussing anything controversial. You're not negotiating anything. It's not tense. It's just casual conversation. And in about five minutes, you're like, I can't stand it. Someone help me, you know, get me out of here. And, 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 and so it's like, why does that happen, right? Uh, and, and again, you know, there's a situation where uh, you try to get something addressed and you're calling a call center uh, and you maybe had a couple of conversations and um, you're heated, you're tense. I mean, you're, you have an agenda and you call and someone picks up and all they do is greet you and ask you for your name and, you know, uh, that's it. And you've made up your mind it's not going to go well. You're like, oh, no, not not him or her. Right. And. You instantly know, and sometimes, you know, some people just hang up then and there and redial to get a different agent. Um, and it's because, you know, sometimes those bioprints click, they match randomly, and you get the person who matches your conversational rhythm, um, and other times it clashes. And uh, what we make happen is we maximize the chances that it always matches versus clashing. And there's no technology like that that exists in the world today outside of what we built uh, because um, you'd need a human psychologist on both sides doing that matchmaking to make that happen. But AI can do it at scale.
That's incredible. I know we're in the business, uh, we recruit and we have, you know, I've interviewed 20,000 people and in that process, I'm sure there's many people that I felt and they felt weren't compatible with me or me with them or the opportunity. So the question I have is how quickly can you create or can the AI understand the bioprint and then make that match happen, whether it's switching from this call center person to that call center person based on matching that bioprint to that type of person, what's how much conversation is needed before you can actually define it? Yeah. So uh, we're getting better and better at this. Uh, at, at this point today, um, we uh, we can create a bioprint uh, from an interaction that's um, anywhere between a minute and a half to two minutes in length. Uh, we don't need any more, right? So a minute and a half, two minutes uh, is enough of a dialogue to create a bioprint for both parties. If there are two parties in a conversation, you can create a bioprint for both. And then, um, you know, and you could do it real time. Like, so, you know, real time in the sense like uh, live, not real time, I guess. Um, so as soon as you have enough data in a minute and a half, two minutes, you can create that bioprint. And then you could also sort of, uh, you know, use that to match make real time, um, you know, from that perspective. Now, uh, we're working on certain improvements, uh, which when we get to, uh, you could potentially create a bioprint with maybe a few seconds, like 15, 20 seconds, or you know, uh, about that of interaction. And when you do that, you're potentially going to be able to create a bioprint uh, of at least the client uh, when the client's interacting with the IVR system, which is not even human, right? So this is the IVR pre-recorded system, the very annoying system, which asks you these questions, you know, ooh, you know, if it's this, press this. If it's that, press this. And, you know, it's about a minute <laughs> gone uh, before you get to your agenda. Uh, but you could create a bioprint then and there. And so by the time it comes to that they are ready to speak to a human, you could quickly match because you are, already have the bioprints of the agents. Right. That's the easy part, uh, right. you know, and, and you could you could do a live matchmaking there. You don't don't need a previous conversation in place to do the matchmaking. That's great. So once you have that compatibility match, the odds are it's going to improve the outcome of that conversation, whether it's, you know, appeasing a unhappy customer or yeah. collecting that data or that, that, that money that you're owed, whatever it happens to be in debt collection. Um, that's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, you know, when you, when you bring the right two people together and increase the chances of a great conversation, um, everything else remaining untouched or same, which means they're the same agents that you had with the same training that you had. And there's certainly the similar type of clients that you had with the same problems and use cases, but you're just having two humans come together, having a great conversation. Um, you have a better satisfied agent, more engaged agent. You have a better satisfied client, more satisfied client and their outcomes, whether that be, you know, more sales or debt collection or whatever that situation be. Um, increase so we're we uh, we're currently tracking double digit improvements in all the KPIs, whereas the typical industry um, you know uses anywhere from one to three percent as big wins in terms of the improvements with the software technologies that you use. Um, that's because you know you, you're using different capabilities to get to those results, and we're using human psychology and human compatibility that can be, uh, you know, used real time to bring the right two people together and then, you know, um, let nature take its course. Yeah. There's so many applications for this product. I'm excited to see where it goes and, and the <laughs> growth of it. Let's go back a little bit in terms of the company itself. How big are you today employee-wise 
and talk about the funding. Uh, how much have you raised? What round? And and who has led or who's been part of your funding? Yeah, so we tend to uh, you know keep uh, some of our round sizes uh, a little bit under wraps. Uh, we're still working towards a few milestones, but um, we're uh, we've. I'll give you some uh, high levels. Uh, we're still relatively small. Um, we're headquartered out of LA uh, with um, teams in San Francisco Bay Area, LA, of course, um, but also um, a very targeted R&D research team in Athens in Greece. Um, mm. So those are the three locations. We have a few other people that are spread out um, in different parts of US, but those are our three locations that we you know, primarily work out of. Uh, we've done um, uh, four rounds um, and they're still early rounds. And we've had uh, some really good investors uh, who have supported us uh, through this journey. Um, uh, Cardus Ventures uh, out of LA, Rogue, uh, ventures um, and, and uh, books trade equity, and also uh, Incutel, um, which is a very interesting firm. They are a CIA's VC firm, a very sophisticated deep tech investor. Um, and uh, you know, we just had a, we just closed a recent round, and we have a brand new investor join our team as well. CS Ventures, uh, which is founded by Russ Carson, uh, the iconic uh, Russ Carson, and so uh, excited to have them on board as well. That's great. You know, when you get investors on board, there's always a strategic aspect of it. You hope they bring something to the table. Maybe it's they have a bigger network, they bring clients, yeah. they can get you inroads to new opportunities. Um, your founders seem like there, or your investors seem like there's a there's a, some really good diversity there. Sure. Um, out of that, where do you think the biggest opportunity is for your product as you go forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, we um, uh, we're exploring new um, directions uh, while we are very focused on building our on our core opportunity. And um, you know, as I said, our our core focus uh, is. Um, optimizing these interactions um, in a contact center by you know using the behavioral psychology and voice AI uh, to really sort of like you know bring the best out of every human out there right so for example so we'd say you know it's less about training it's less about saying you have a bad agent or a good agent there's no good agents or bad agents they're just humans and um, humans are not necessarily always compatible right uh, they have the unique uh, aspects. Uh, but if you maximize the potential of their uniqueness, uh, you can bring the best out of them and also bring the best outcomes to your business. And so that's a capability that is then made possible by this product, uh, AI Immediate Conversations. That remains a core. I mean, so we're very focused on uh, building that out. Uh, we um, have also taken a slightly, I'd say, unconventional path of you know um, going after uh, more of a enterprise rollout versus, you know, uh, sort of a, a SaaS offering, uh, which, um, you know, has its pros and cons. And so, but because of the path that we have chosen, uh, we are largely selling right now through channels, so through large channel partners like, you know, Genpak, through DDCom, uh, ENY, among others. So those, those are the channel partners that we're focused on. Um, and so that remains our core, and we continue to focus on that. But outside of that, um, you know, we've recently started to explore some very interesting use cases, uh, which are not related to our core, and which is applying our technology uh, 
uh, towards uh, use cases that are uh, in the law enforcement and uh, you know national security realm. And uh, we have various capabilities around um, understanding, modeling, and uh, you know tracking variances in in behavioral mapping. And you could use that for uh, some of those use cases. Uh, we have capabilities around um, also sort of you know understanding threat, um, understanding elements of fraud or trustworthiness. Um, we, we actually have done a lot of work in the area of deep fakes and some of the things that we'll be announcing soon. We haven't publicly announced yet, um, so stay tuned on that. Uh, and uh, and also you know uh, sort of uh, really sort of. Uh, uh, improving the current uh, capabilities that exist in sort of the you know the the polygraph world uh, to so to say right which is very inadequate and problematic and sort of we could really improve on improve on those areas so some of those things uh, were sort of like you know just uh, starting the journey on and so we are uh, working with some government clients towards some of the interesting use cases in that space um, and we'll continue to do that I mean I, I think you know um, it. it those use cases are uh, very synergistic to our core, so it's not a distraction. Uh, we're using the same building blocks that we have to go solve a slightly different problem, uh, but also some of the things that we're building specifically for that market, uh, we're, uh, you know, we're able to bring it back into uh, our core offering because uh, you know, banks are just as interested in uh, predicting uh, an intent to fraud or assessing trustworthiness, et cetera. Um, that's a big problem now, but I think it will be a massive problem, um, you know, in the era of deep fakes and uh, where, you know, most of these, most of the conversations are, most of the banks are potentially eventually at some point going to become neobanks, right? I mean, even the traditional banks are mostly operating as neobanks today. I mean, how often do you actually go to a bank branch? Um, there's not a lot of reasons to. Um, and so, you know, your interactions are then, largely all digital and, you know, and voice based. And so some of these tools become really, really important. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, you mentioned something I think is interesting. You talked about your product and getting into the market through channel partners. And I know that for a lot of companies, you think you got to build a product, get to market and then build a sales team and sell it and get out there as a startup and get your brand in front of customers. But, you know, almost every big company has a channel partner um, channel and it's, it's a significant amount of revenue for them. It's also a strategic direction. You might want to take your company, but I think it's really, how did you even begin to start to build a, um, a channel partner? Yeah, you know, you know, I, I'd say uh, when you are um, taking a step towards enterprise sales, you, you'll realize quickly enough, uh, especially so if you are uh, building something that is um, new and cutting edge, um, like an AI implementation, is that, Let's say you built a product um, that hits bang on target on the KPIs that the client wants. Um, it's exactly the problem they're looking to solve, and you're solving it uh, in a massive way, which makes you making a massive improvement. That doesn't mean that they can buy from you, by the way, right? <laughs> so, so you know, you could go to uh, Goldman Sachs or Citibank and say, you know, you have this big problem, and or they come to you and say, we have this big problem, and you know, we could solve this and we can fix it. Let's show you how, and uh, and it's not unhypothetical. You could actually also, you know, uh, do a full A/B test and do a measure on that, and you could show the ROI on that. But that still doesn't mean that they can buy from you. There's a lot of uh, complexity in implementation and deployment, 
right? And uh, it's it's a it's a collection of things uh, ranging from just the complexity of the, the the technical stack where you have so many different pieces in it, and you have this new pieces that you want to add that needs to integrate and operate peacefully and you know safe and coexist with that stack. But also there's regulations. There's compliance, uh, there's GDPR, there's SOC 2, there's AI and PI2 considerations. Um, then there are unique country laws, et cetera, et cetera. Then there is the risk assessment. Even if you pass on all of those things, vendor onboarding in some of these companies, which you only start after you close the deal, which could take about a year or a year and a half, can last for two years, up to two years, right? So you're looking at three to four years to go get your product running uh, where you, you could do that in three weeks, right? I mean, technically you could just deploy and ready and, and but you know, that doesn't mean so. Um, channel partners are immensely valuable uh, to go solve that complexity, especially for uh, a small, um, relatively new AI player in the market uh, that is building something that is, um, you know, first of its kind, it's cutting edge. Um, if you're building something more commoditized, then it's somewhat easier. Um, and so I think, you know, the channel partners play a huge role. And I think you, uh, we learned that fairly early on that uh, we do do direct sales as well, uh, but it's a lower part of our strategy just because um, a lot of the clients that we're going out, we're going out after large accounts and with larger deals. And um, most of these clients are very large companies. And many of them are public companies, public banks and financial institutions. And uh, the the benchmark for security and compliance is just extraordinarily high. Um, and uh, I mean, we do have some advantages on our side that, you know, we we don't really have a lot of PI that we touch or personally identify information because we're primarily focused on the tone of voice, uh, which means we're not ever using uh, handling the data that is personally identifiable. Uh, like in, in many ways, we're GDPR ready out of the box because there's nothing to redact. We don't even take the audio, convert that into text. But even so, uh, there are other considerations that come to play. Um, so for us, yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, we, we had to do it. We had no choice. Oh. And, uh, and, I, and I feel, uh, I feel that's, that's the right strategy for something like uh, the product that we're bringing to market. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you're more unique than other entrepreneurs where you've, you know, been at startups, you've done the turnaround, uh, you understand enterprise, you know, of that experience, specifically being at a turnaround, having to make some hard decisions, maybe having to let people go, having to tighten up the funding, figuring out how to redirect or pivot the company. What's one or two of the biggest lessons that you learned that you've applied to your current startup or maybe even your previous startup that's been really beneficial? There are a lot of lessons, a lot of experiences, a lot of takeaways. Um, I'll, I'll tell you um, about one specific aspect of that turnaround. Um, so when we looked at turning turning around this company, um, you know, it had a very iconic uh, brand with a very loyal following uh, in the market um, and the customers really were begging and screaming for this company to be saved. Um, so we felt that was very promising. Um, you know, there is uh, certainly, you know, uh, a fan base um, that, that wants this company to survive. Um, but when you look at a turnaround, right, and you look at a turnaround, especially at that scale, where the company was close to 300 million in debt at that point, um, and you look at, okay, 
how do you bring it back to profitability? You look at all the obvious pieces, right? So you have like these five offices. One of one of them is a swanky and a executive suite. And I mean, you guys are bankrupt. Why do you have that? Right. Uh, you know, why, you know, literally at that time, I, I recall now uh, there was this beautiful office um, with seven floors and the seventh floor was this massive, uh, you know, 10, 15,000 square feet space uh, with seven offices uh, for seven executives, uh, each, you know, about 2000 square feet office with uh, a live-in ex executive assistant. So you look at all that stuff and you're like, okay, that's got to go. Right. And so those things have to change. Um, you have to cut cost. You're also looking at people, uh, who's the right team, who's not the right team. So you have to, you know, um, get the right team assembled towards the new goal that you have. Um, and you're fixing up various business processes and everything. All of those things make sense. But we quickly realized that none of that is going to actually eventually help. Um, you're, you're too deep down and yeah, they'll all help a little bit, but it's not going to get you out of that hole. Um, you know, and so then what do you do, right? And so we actually realized that okay, the only way you could actually help turn this company around is uh, by bringing so something so disruptive and innovative to the market that the market's never seen before. So we had to go back to the ground board and say, okay, let's take a look at the, the, the product and the experience that you're selling and everything that's wrong with it. And what would be the utopian experience? Forgetting about the engineering piece or whether it's possible or not, if you were to just dream it, if you had to dream that experience, what would it take? What would that experience look like? I mean, let's say it's a, this is the, the concept car model, right? Which is like, you know, uh, some of those are not practical in reality. And so, I mean, this particular product um, had a lot of complexities. It's, a, it's like a 3D printer type of a device, not a 3D printer. It's like a, more of a device that you could design on a software system and then it cuts, writes, embosses. So it's a lot of mechanical pieces, all very robotic, uh, which had to be calibrated and set up by a very non-technical uh, you know, consumer. And so you look at it and say, you know, can you replace this with uh, like a dial? Um, that would be more prevalent in, I say, a washing machine or a microwave. Because when you're doing a load of laundry, you're not really, you know, calibrating the temperature and the spin cycles. You're just putting it on the, and the machine takes care of everything. Can you do that in a mechanical robotic device? There's a different level of complexity. Um, and so when we knew what would it take to disrupt, we then just decided to go ahead and try it out. And uh, at that time, it was more of... Um, you know, um, the impossibility of that. And a lot of people said it can't be done. And then they left. Uh, and then there were some crazies who said, I think it can be done. It's like, okay, come on, let's start. Let's join, <laughs> you know, build this out. And uh, and it just worked. I mean, and so it made it happen. And then it's rest is history, right? And so, so I think, you know, the big lesson is sometimes um, there is no substitute for innovation, right? You could have the best entrepreneurs, um, you could have the most sophisticated executives. You could have the smartest team from Ivy Leagues. Uh, not to say that Ivy Leagues are the smartest. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, my experiences, you know, it's been it's been the reverse. But uh, none of that really will get you uh, out of the the situation that you're in. Um, you have to innovate yourself out of it. And uh, oftentimes innovation is the only answer and it's the hardest thing to do. And so I keep reminding myself about that, right? I mean, so building a startup is a super hard journey. 
um, everything is going wrong. Oftentimes, I mean, you're dealing with, uh, you know, team issues, investor issues, product issues, all of those situations. Uh, but if you're innovating, uh, I, I, I tell myself you're on the right track. You keep innovating. Have you moved the needle in innovation? Have you done something unique? Have you built something, you know, that is, um, you know, really worth uh, sort of being proud of? Then you're on the right track. I mean, other things fall in line. And uh, it's a, I mean, you could keep, continue to focus on flawless execution and all of those things, and um, you still won't get anywhere in the long term. Yeah. Well said. God, Ron, I, you, everything you're talking about is captivating. I feel like I could talk to you all day long here. Um, but I know we got to wrap up. What is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share? Um, that, I mean, uh, I, I, I think we've had a really good, uh, conversation, so I can't come up with uh, a particular thing. Um, I mean, I just, uh, I mean, I'd ask you maybe a question in terms of like, you know, how, uh, what has your biggest learning been talking to a lot of entrepreneurs? I mean, how, how does that, uh, sort of, uh, compare with some of the things uh, that you've seen yourself? Yeah, I mean, in terms of listening to lots of entrepreneurs and talking to them about how they're going about their business or innovating or trying to get to market, I think it's all, uh, the, the path I think is fairly similar. I think there's just different places you start and different problems you're trying to solve. So for us, you know, it's always about, you know, what's the person, you know, like what's inside that person that really is going to be able to understand the problem at hand and be able to solve it. And we hear their stories about, you know, they're looking to the abyss, their funds are running out, they don't know where to go, and they figure out how to get it done. I think sometimes you just got to show up. I think it's just like a day-to-day -day yeah. thing. You just show up and eventually you start to find your path. And it seems to be a reoccurring theme that we hear. So yeah. Yeah, I don't think you always know where you're going to end up. And myself, I've had my own companies as well as, you know, sometimes you're going through the forest and you're not sure where the destination and you just keep going and eventually you see it and then you focus and you keep going and you get there. Mm -hmm. So it's great, but you know, you have those ups and downs, those ebb and flows that are, can be scary. They can be exciting. Mm -hmm. They could be questionable at times. Mm -hmm. I think you just keep going and uh, your experience to me is uh, maybe more interesting than others because you've been at the enterprise level, you've, you've been at companies that were not going the right direction and, and having to turn them around. It's not just about turning the company around, you have to turn people around. Yeah, and to do so. that, you lose them or they're with you and right. you move forward. So um, it's I, I think it's fascinating and love to talk to more founders that have gone through that experience. I think there's a lot of pivot stories in there. For startups, you know, you have an idea and you maybe you have to pivot left or right as you go. But when you're starting in the wrong direction and it's a complete pivot, I think that experience has got to be very different. So that's kind of a, just my, my thoughts. If, if people wanted to find you or find your company, Behavioral Signals, where would they go to do that? Yeah. So go to behavioralsignals.com. Uh, and, you know, uh, if, if you're working on something interesting, which you think uh, might be sort of uh, worth a discussion, uh, I'm fairly, uh, w you know, well present on social media. So you could reach me on Twitter, my first and the last name, Rana Gujral, uh, or, you know, uh, any anywhere else, uh, you know, LinkedIn. Uh, happy, to, happy to chat. Well, Rana, thanks for joining us today. Um, and thanks for all the listeners that are listening. It means the world to me and to us. Uh, my name is Jake Aaron Villarreal, and we're signing off for now. But can't wait to connect with you again soon on the next episode. Take care.
Before we wrap up, I want to give a big shout out to all the entrepreneurs that have joined to make this podcast possible. And for all the listeners for listening, it means the world to me that you chose to spend your time with us today. I'm your host, Jake Aaron Villarreal, signing off for now. We can't wait to connect with you all soon on the next episode. Take care. This show is sponsored by Match Relevant, a company that helps venture-backed startups find the best people in the market, and they do it in three simple steps. First, they sit down with founders to understand their story. Second, they tell their story into multiple candidate channels. And third, they schedule interviews within 48 hours. Find us at matchrelevant.com to learn more about how we do it.